Tonight's show is brought to you by Archaeology, because it's awesome, Vendetti Optics, and you, our listeners. But that's not what the French were really about. The French were here, and they were just like, yo, let's get along. I want your beavers. What is up, all of you Wayward Souls, and welcome back to the Wayward Stories podcast. Wayward Stories is the podcast where we tell the tales of our adventures and our wanderings and our wonderings. So, are you all ready for the holidays? Well, guess what? It doesn't matter if you are or not. They're coming for you. They are here now, as is this podcast, which I am dropping early for all of you guys in case you were doing traveling over your Christmas holiday, if you're going out to see family and friends, or as we've talked about, if you do not have any of that anymore, or the holidays are particularly, wow, that was, y'all are going to have to bear with me tonight. My brain, totally fried, million different things going on. It's all good, so we're just going to keep rolling, okay? We're going to roll with the flow tonight. But anyway, as I was saying, if the holidays are a particularly tough time for you, like we talked about back with the Thanksgiving episode, and I've talked about so many times before, if they're tough on you, don't sit around. Don't, don't let the blues get you down. Reach out to people you can count on or make your own Traditions. Y'all, going on a little road trip for yourself, just getting out, seeing something new, it is so good for the soul. That's what this podcast is all about. So good for your soul to get out and see new places, see new faces. Y'all, I'm telling you, some of my favorite Thanksgiving and Christmas meals over the la- over my lifetime have happened in the last five or six years. And sometimes, like, you know, last year it was at Denny's for Thanksgiving, just like in the Santa Claus. Denny's, it's always open. Because it really is. Or, you know, making a sandwich on my knee, booking across the Tularosa Basin, outrunning a snowstorm. Y'all, those are the best Thanksgiving. Those are the best holiday meals for me. But I'm a weirdo. Like, I am that that black sheep. I am that person who does not care for your traditions. Whose traditions, who, you know, everyone's traditions have failed. Don't eat them. And I've made my own, and they're super awesome now. And I hope you guys, if any of you do have a hard time with the holidays, I hope you will take a cue from the old wayward son, pull it right out of my template. You don't have to do what I do. Go do something else, but go out and do something. I am dropping this episode early so that everyone out there will have it over the holiday weekend in case you're traveling, whether you are going to family and friends, which I hope that a lot of you are. And for any of you that are not, hopefully you're out there on your own road trip and I am dropping this early so you guys will have it. And so I'll also have it out of my way because guess what? It is that time and we are deep, deep in the planning stages of my yearly Thanksgiving slash Christmas slash birthday slash holiday end of the year road trip palooza extravaganza and it's looking i'm excited y'all it takes you know like listen i'm like a a last minute guy when it comes to this kind of stuff part of that is on purpose because that's part of the adventure let's just see where the road takes us and god that is so much fun that's what so much of this to me is all about because it's like that freedom like all of our lives we're in shackles y'all we are prisoners We are prisoners to our society. As free as we are in America, we are still prisoners. We are prisoners to our corporations that we work for. We're prisoners to, yeah, we're still prisoners. But every once in a while, every once in a while, we do, as I say, set that, responsibly set that period of irresponsibility. And when I say irresponsibility, I'm not talking about going out and like getting into any kind of bohemian style, uh, gatherings of a sort or anything crazy. I don't even drink anymore. Y'all, it's been years since I've drank. I'm talking about like, just go out and like go where the road takes you and not have to answer to anyone or anything. You know, that's what's so awesome about it. So anyway, part of it is by design. We're just going to figure it out as we go. But the other part is that's also being, you know, divorced and having shared custody of a child, having, other people in your life that take time and, and everything has to work out just right. And it's like, you sometimes you're down to the last minute going, I don't even know if this is going to happen. If it does, it's going to be cool. If it doesn't, I know that's going to be disappointing, but you know, put together a pretty good plan for the next time, whatever. Well, it's finally worked out. We're kind of down to the wire, but it's finally worked out. And as you guys are listening to this, I am wrapping up 
my weekend with my daughter, most likely, or having it. And in just a day or two, I'm going to be on the road and I'm going to be heading to New Mexico again, but this time with an added bonus of Arizona. And then stay a little farther north and looking at probably hitting some of the backcountry byways, some of those, you know, Bureau of Land Management, BLM lands. Oh, my gosh. Super excited, y'all. Been doing my research. We are psyched, ready to go. I can't wait to get out there and do it. Been waiting a year for this, right? I can't wait. I can't wait. And I hope a lot of you are listening to this as you are out there on your adventures. Um, And if you are, by the way, you know, let me know. Get in touch and let me know what adventures you've been on so we can talk about them on the show. Take a page out of the book of Mary, our newest person to write in and to leave a review on um, Apple Podcast. As I've told you guys, I always shout you guys out if you leave a review. She not only wrote an email, she also left a review. Both of them were awesome. Mary, if you're listening, check your spam folder in case you did not get my reply. I totally took the time to reply to you. I appreciate your email so much. She is out there listening in the great state of Kentucky and really liked the Rails to Trails episode. She is a Rails Trails um, Conservancy member for many years, she said, and a new retiree and a traveler and an explorer of the outdoors. And she sounds like my kind of gal. So Mary, thank you for writing in. And if any of you guys, Mary, you included, if any of you, have any awesome itineraries, any trips you've been on or are taking, send an email, mywaywardstory at gmail.com. Y'all, be like Mary. Go out there and leave that rating and that review. That is so huge. And subscribe and share it to all your friends and all that stuff. And right there, in 10 seconds, we discovered housekeeping. But anyway, with my little tangent aside about how excited I am to get back out there on the road and encouraging you to do the same, And covering housekeeping, let's get on with tonight's show. So what are we going to talk about tonight? If you looked at the um, episode title, as most of you usually do, so I don't know why I say this, but every podcaster does it. Tonight, we are going to be talking about some more Arkansas State Parks. We're going to be specifically talking about three over in the eastern part of the state that I have been quite excited to check out for a long time. And finally, over the course of like two different weekends, a couple of different road trips, one of them an overnighter, kind of a weekend trip, and the other one a day trip, just because the opportunity presented itself, I made it to Plum Bayou Parking in Hampson, and they're all archaeological state parks. Now, for a lot of you, you know, you guys are into the hiking, you're into the backpacking, you're into the paddling, you're into the bicycling. Um, these three are not those. What they are, though, is awesome state parks with absolutely gorgeous museums and collections and tell a very incredible portion of our history here in our state of Arkansas. And of course, I am a nerd. I am an anthropologist in training, and I play a little archaeology. I got to last year, and I intend to more this coming year. So... Because this is my show, we're going to talk about my road trips to these three sites tonight. And along the way, if you're not interested in history or archaeology or indigenous cultures or people that made freaking awesome, amazing art, pottery, um, a thousand freaking years ago, then, you know, hang around anyway, because what else are you going to do for the next 45 minutes? I mean, I guess, yeah, you could go listen to Joe Rogan, but, but he lacks the charisma I have. That's because he's usually stoned when he records. So hang around and along the way, even if you're not interested in in these things, if I am a good scientific communicator or interpreter, as it were, I will perhaps make it interesting to you, hopefully. And if not, you're still going to find out some interesting stuff along the way that could make you a nice little day trip over in eastern Arkansas because... There's a lot going on over there. It's a lot more interesting than I ever really expected it to be. I've only ever kind of blown through on 40 doing 95 miles an hour heading further east. Um, And it's not as flat and boring as you might think. So if you will hang around, you will hear all about it. And with that said, let's get into the meat of tonight's show. The first stop we are going to make tonight is at Plum Bayou. Now, Plum Bayou was originally known as Toltec Mounds Archaeological State Park because the people who originally found it way back in the day, in the 1800s, thought, well, all we really know about is like the Aztecs and the Maya, the people in Central Mexico, you know, Central America, and they've got all of these awesome platform pyramids and these mounds here 
look a whole lot like that. So these must be from the Toltec, you know, people. That was horribly inaccurate, of course, as, you know, archaeology and science generally was in the 1800s. Um, man, I've been reading books, y'all. One of them, George Ephraim Squire. He is one of those guys that was one of those early Indiana Jones kind of types. People that actually Indiana Jones was sort of modeled after. Terrible archaeology, but they were like the first real kind of concerted, somewhat systematic effort at scientifically exploring and excavating um, and cataloging and recording some of these mound sites of which there used to be tens of thousands, tens upon tens of thousands across the Midwest, most of which have been completely and utterly destroyed by urban sprawl. Y'all, St. Louis, Missouri literally was an entire mound city, and it all just pretty much got leveled. Now, Cahokia, if you want an idea of kind of what was going on up there in that society, you can go over across the river to East St. Louis to Cahokia. And that is one of the, like, it's extremely significant archaeological site with massive platform mound, monk's mound. A lot of cool stuff over there just outside of St. Louis. And you can go over there and see that and get an idea of how impressive what must have been going on in St. Louis proper was. It's not more impressive than what's at Cahokia. That may have sounded funny the way I worded that. But the idea is you can see it was a massive amount of people. It was a large culture to have such a significant site. That was St. Louis. Okay, and there's none of that. I think there's one mound left that you can hunt down in St. Louis that's like in the middle of two roads at an intersection, um, if it still exists. Even so these mounds were everywhere. Hardly any of them ever, you know, still exist. And you did have some people who were making some systematic efforts to come out and record and and you know bring this stuff in a scientific manner back to um, you know places like the Smithsonian. Like that was a legitimate thing, but it was really terrible archaeology at the time. But it was kind of better than nothing. Because they were trying to save something that was absolutely disappearing. But anyway, sites like this existed all over. Midwestern and even into the southeastern states all the way over into Arkansas. And even a little bit into eastern Oklahoma. Y'all, I mean, one of the probably most significant and important archaeological sites in all of North America is about 12-15 miles as the crow flies from me. Due west, just across the border into Oklahoma called Spiral Mount. You want to learn about why archaeology is important and why protecting these cultural sites is important? Just Google the Spiro Mound, S-P-I-R-O, like Spiro Agnew or whatever. He was one of the presidents way back in the day. Just Google that. Look into the Spiro Mounds and it will, I don't care how much you don't care about history, it will make you sick what you're going to go read when you read that and what was lost that we will never ever get to know about. And just the things that we did have some access to and do, how absolutely incredible they are. And to know that a hundred times that much was lost and set some private collections on some jerkwad rich person's house in the middle of God knows where so that they can show off to the one friend they have whenever they come over. It's disgusting. It will turn your stomach. Um, but go look into that. You want to talk about a fascinating read, a little bit of research and learn about how things were. And it'll give you an idea why, like, these state parks and national parks, like where I'm about to go out into New Mexico and Arizona. Y'all, I very much intend to check out some of the Puebloan culture out there. Like, I may even get to make it up to Canyon de Chez. Have no idea. Chaco Canyon? Possibly. That's a possibility. Anyway, go look that up. Spiral Mound. And you'll get an idea why it's so important um, to protect this stuff. But anyway, so this side in particular is actually a really, really interesting site. It had some really cool platform mounds. I'm going to read to you real quick from the brochure that comes from the site so you can get kind of the, the state-level overview. And this is something that is like joint cooperation with the Arkansas Archaeological Survey, the Arkansas Archaeological Society, the state parks. They all work together to make sure that a good and proper story is being told as best as we understand it, as best as we can interpret the data that is available. Um, and the history of how the site was found, all of those kinds of things. So anyway, I'm going to read to you about this a little bit. Toltec Mound State Park in the modern farmlands of the Arkansas River Valley are the remains of a large group of ancient earthworks known as Toltec Mounds. This impressive archaeological site has attracted national interest for over 100 years and was designated as a National Historic Landmark in 1978. The history of this site is... 
Miss Gilbert Knapp, who owned the site from 1857 to 1900, mistakenly believed the mounds were associated with the Toltec people of Mexico. Investigations by archaeologists in 1883 supported the theory that these mounds, like others in North America, had been built by the ancestors of the North American Indians. Border on the west by the bank of Mound Pond, the mound complex was surrounded by a 10-foot-high earthen embankment. Early visitors more than a century ago reported that 16 mounds stood within the embankment, varying in height from 3 to 50 feet. Today, 18 mound locations have been identified with three remaining mounds, including the tallest mound in Arkansas, Mound A, at 49 feet high, and a portion of the embankment being visible. Now, when they say embankment, y'all, what we're talking about is this site went right up to a Oxbow Lake, which is a basically a abandoned channel of the Arkansas River. Um, the river changed course and left these leaves these really long lakes. That's an Oxbow Lake. You can look that up if you need to. But it comes right up to the Oxbow Lake, and they built this giant earthen embankment that basically ringed the entire city and outside of that was a moat that was dug out and went around the entire little complex y'all that represents a bunch of man hours that's a lot of work because they moved the dirt in baskets okay they moved the dirt in baskets they carried it by hand one basket load at a time to build a 49 foot mound and the other two mounts that are even um, somewhat shorter, but still huge amounts of earth. They're built right up against the bayou. Well, the mound pond, what's, you know, the abandoned channel of the river. This is impressive stuff. Okay. This is incredible stuff. We're talking about a thousand years ago. They laid this out. It has astronomical alignments within it. It's fascinating. It's fascinating. Anyway, Toltec mounds in the ninth century. We're going back a thousand years. And we're going to talk about this. I mean, actually, we go back to roughly, we go back from like 1,400 years to around 900 years is when the society was sort of thriving. The people who built the Toltec Mounds had a culture that was distinctive from other contemporary groups in the Mississippi and Arkansas River Valleys. The name that has been given to these people is the Plum Bayou Culture. The Plum Bayou people lived in permanent villages, farmed in the rich alluvial soil, gathered wild plant foods, and fished and hunted. Mound groups such as Toltec Mounds served as religious and social centers for people living in the surrounding countryside. Toltec itself was inhabited by a small population of political and religious leaders from, around, from about 600 to 1150 A.D. or C.E. The surrounding embankment was an impressive earthwork 8 to 10 feet high, and 5,298 feet in length. Mounds were built along the edges of two open plazas, which were used for political, religious, and social activities. The locations of mounds seems to have been planned using principles based on alignment with important solar positions and using standardized unit, units of measure. Through archaeological investigations, we know that most of the mounds were square or rectangular, flat-topped platforms. Mound B at 38 feet high was constructed and enlarged over time and was probably occupied by a religious structure. Mounds D, E, S, and G were low platforms, less than 5 feet in height that may have had habitation structures on top of them. Mound C, 12 feet high, is a dome-shaped burial mound. So, as you can see, this is a really impressive place. And today, it's a little bit less impressive because many of the mounds are gone. Because you know why they're gone? Because people like needed to plant crops. And they did not see the significance in those mounds um, or the cultural significance or the possible importance other than for like pot hunting. So they could try to make a little money um, out of the little artifacts that may come out of the ground. But they basically got plowed into the ground, quite literally plowed into the ground, like agricultural work. The plowing of fields has destroyed more mound sites than probably anything else. Combined, I mean, probably by a long shot, even the building of cities and urban sprawl probably doesn't even touch the amount of mound sites that were affected and destroyed that we may have never even know existed. We're lucky to have the ones we do. Why did the big mounds remain? Well, that's a lot of dirt to move in the 1800s when you're trying to farm. That's a lot of work. It's a whole lot of work. It's way easier to just plow over the smaller mounds and plant on those mounds, but a big giant hill with real steep sides, it's a lot of work to take it down. So, you know, let's just leave that alone. And that's how some of those kinds of things get preserved. When you go here, there's like a lot going on down here that's really, really interesting. A lot of things that are going in favor of Toltec mounds is number one, 
it is it does preserve the three main mounds and, and several other smaller ones. Like you can still see the vestiges. You can see part of the embankment. You can literally go there, guys, and stand and see what was going on 14, 13, 12, 11, 8, 900 years ago. You know, that's fascinating to me. It's a really, really cool place to get in touch with some of the early peoples and the way that they lived on this continent where we now reside. And there's other bonuses that come along with Going to check out Plum Bayou is roughly five minutes up the road is the Arkansas Plantation Museum State Park. Another state park you can go up and get the stamp on your guide. But y'all, it's really cool too. Like this is what's getting me is that the more I dig into all this history, because again, I'm getting more involved with the local state stuff because that's where my degree is going, you know, and I keep finding more things that I didn't know I was interested in that now I'm interested in and I don't have the time to be interested in them. I don't have the brain space. I don't have the time. I don't have the effort to be interested. And that is kicking my butt. But it's really fascinating stuff. I never in my life would have thought I would have been interested in like cotton plantation history, like learning about that. I mean, I know about it. It's a huge part of American history. It's a huge part of Arkansas in the Southeast, of course, the Southern states. But I never thought it was going to be interesting to me. It's just not really my thing. Then we go by this, this museum you know, this Arkansas Plantation Museum, because it's right there. Going to get that state park stamp, right? I'm coming for that t-shirt. I'm coming for it. It was fascinating. It was a cool place. It was totally fascinating. Like, they got these giant structures where they would keep, you know, the, the cotton and then the baled cotton and the, the railroad tracks and the lines that came in and the spurs so that they could ship the stuff out and how they did it, how they processed it. It was actually really fascinating. And I know any of you out there that aren't into history, you're you're probably, you've already checked out. So from here on out, I'm talking to people. We're a half hour into this, 20 minutes into this. If anyone's still here, you're interested in history. So I'm talking to you from here on out. It was fascinating, guys. Really cool place right there by Plum Bayou. Totally worth. I mean, that's a good day trip. And that's exactly what this was. Like my trip in general for this weekend, what we had done is woke up on a Saturday morning. I believe it was Saturday. Maybe it was Sunday. I don't know. No, it was Saturday. And it was like, what are we going to do? Like, I don't know what we're going to do. Like, I don't want to just sit here. Well, I've really been wanting to go to Plum Bayou. Why don't we go to Plum Bayou and then we'll like stay in Little Rock. And I don't know, go have dinner somewhere in Little Rock. Go out on the Junction Bridge. I want to go out on the Junction Bridge. So it was like, you know, last minute. It's only a four-hour drive. Last minute, fire it off, head down there, get to Plum Bayou. Plum Bayou is awesome. Go back and check out the Agricultural Museum. It's awesome. And by the way, down there is actually a little bit more interesting than you think. Like you don't, you think of like cotton fields and stuff and you think of this really, I mean, I thought of Kansas. I kind of just thought of Kansas, which is wheat fields, obviously, but I just thought it'd be flat, nothing but ag fields. It's sort of that, but it's not. There are trees everywhere. There are tree lines everywhere. There's a lot of rolling. It's not just flat plains. It's actually really beautiful. It was shocking. It was kind of surprising to me that it was as beautiful as I found it to be. Um, but it was like an awesome day. It was an awesome drive down. Go down, check out Plum Bayou. Come back, check out the Agricultural Museum and learn things. Like, have you ever heard the term, oh, I'm fair to Midland. How are you today? Oh, I'm fair to Midland. You hear that around here in the South a lot. Heck, I've used it for years. But how are you today? Well, fair to Midland. I found out where that came from at the agricultural museum right up the road from Plum Bayou, which is apparently that was one of the grades of cotton. If it was like a mid-grade cotton, it was fair to Midland. So there you go. You learned something new tonight. Um, but anyway, from there, went back to Little Rock to stay and went down to the Junction Bridge right, right in time for sunset. And this is something I highly suggest everyone should try to do. Little Rock's a pretty cool little city, y'all. It really is. There's some awesome stuff going on down in Little Rock. The Junction Bridge is one of those things. Of course, you have the Big Dam Bridge, which is what everyone gets really excited about. Um, but I like the Junction Bridge better because it was an ancient, like not ancient. God, God, we're talking about archaeology tonight. So everything's going to be ancient. Apparently, one of the earliest railroad bridges that came into Arkansas across the Arkansas River. And of course, now it is no longer a railroad bridge and they have converted it to pedestrian use and they've lit it up like a Christmas tree. And it's absolutely beautiful out over the Arkansas river. Awesome for photo opportunities. Go see my Instagram wayward son, one nineteen, 
and check it out because I think I got a couple of killer pictures I was super happy with. It sets right atop the Little Rock. Y'all, did you ever wonder where the name Little Rock came from? Well, it came because that was a literal like waypoint on the river that people, the earliest explorers coming west, it was the Little Rock on the Arkansas and it was just down from the Big Rock. Anyway, that's where Little Rock got its name and there's still a section of that original bluff that was called the Little Rock just below the Junction Bridge. And you can actually see that with your own eyes. Um, but the Junction Bridge, y'all, being out on that bridge, it's sunset, the light's starting to come on on the bridge, all these multicolored lights, they change color with time. Um, and you see the sunset behind the Little Rock skyline and down behind the river. It was gorgeous. Guys, it was absolutely beautiful. And after we checked it all out, got real cold, because it's cold right now, got real cold, walked up and went down the street one block to a place called Iriana's, which is a pizza restaurant. And it is not Iriana's. It is Iriana's. It tells you right on the menu how to pronounce it. It's very particular, very specific. It is Iriana's. Um, and had some really, really, really good pizza right there on the corner of Markham, watching the trolleys run right down the middle of the street all night. And it was super cool. It was a really really neat experience. Uh, quite honestly, it was a really neat experience I did not expect to have in Little Rock. Um, and after we'd eaten, we walked back down to the Junction Bridge, because that's where the car was parked anyway, and got pictures of the bridge lit up with the reflections of the different colors coming off the water. Like those right there, y'all, those are money shots. Y'all believe that. Those are money shots. I have one at the Cotter Bridge um, from when I did my rush. That was actually a Christmas adventure. Two years ago? Was it last year? No, I think it was the year before. I don't remember. But when if you go back and listen to Hiking Rush, or Hiking of Arkansas's Abandoned Mining Town, Rush, whatever, go find that episode, listen to it. I talk about it. Got an awesome picture of the Cotter Bridge lit up for Christmas, the colored lights playing across the water. That's one of my favorite pictures I've taken. And this one goes right there with it. There's something about that. If you ever see a bridge, a beautifully architectured bridge and they got all the shiny pretty lights on it go find a good location down off the water and get it with the reflection in the water and you will sell canvas prints that simple um so it was like almost a little bit of a magical night y'all it was awesome it was a really cool day for a spur of the moment weekend road trip and this goes back to what i'm always telling you guys people kind of i feel like a lot of people out there get in one of two mindsets either I'm only interested in doing things that will likely never happen in my lifetime, like quitting my job, moving to Bolivia and, you know, reliving Butch Cassidy and the Sundance kids last moments, you know, or whatever. They get these ideas. I'm going to go do stuff someday. That's totally impossible. Quit my job. I don't know how I'm going to pay the bills. It doesn't matter. That's what I'm going to do. And then it's like, they don't actually live their life while they're waiting to get to that probably unattainable moment. I feel like there's that camp. And then there are the other people that are like, well, you know, I mean, I just want to go to Yosemite or I just want to go to the Smokies. I got to go ride those zip lines, you know, or, oh, you know what? I need to go see arches. I get that. I'm doing that. I'm doing that next week. As you're listening to this, I may be doing that right now as you're listening to this, depending on when you listen to this episode. But I'm also doing other things too. When I can't be out there chasing national monuments and national parks, like chasing stuff, Locally, because I don't want to sit around and do nothing on my weekends. I can't go explore the whole United States or the rest of the world all the stinking time. None of us can. But there's still things to do. This was a day trip right here in Arkansas, and it was awesome. For me, as a history nerd, as a, as a wannabe play archaeologist someday within my anthropology degree, it was absolutely cool because that's something I'm absolutely fascinated by. I need to know. I need to understand what people's happened at what times in Arkansas history, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? But I also got to go out and do something awesome like get on the Junction Bridge, take some awesome pictures of Little Rock, the Little Rock skyline, the Junction Bridge at sunset, the Junction Bridge after dark, eat at Ariana's, have awesome pizza, watch these trolleys clickety-clacking up and down the streets. It was an awesome little weekend day trip, and it cost really next to nothing. You know, it wasn't even a full tank of gas in, in Little Clemmy making a Subaru gas mileage and, you know, stayed a night down there. I think it's another thing that I'm getting into right now, big time with this trip I'm planning. Y'all 
sign up and be like members of a bunch of different places that you can kind of stay. If you need a place to stay, like you can get some really good deals. I'm about to stay at a pretty dang nice place for 60 bucks a night out in Albuquerque for like five nights, four nights. Is it four nights or five nights? Anyway, 60 bucks a night. And it ain't the Motel 6, baby. This place is pretty freaking nice for 60 bucks a night because I'm a member of like their little stupid thing and whatever and it book early, blah, 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 whatever. Look into that kind of stuff. Stayed in Little Rock for literally 39 bucks at a nice, it was actually one of the nicer places I've stayed in a long, long time. Had a wonderful little weekend road trip where I learned things, where I became a little bit less of an uncultured swine on a little weekend road trip. So as I always tell you guys, there's always something within an hour to two hours to three hours, you know, somewhere within range of you for a weekend adventure. Get off your butts and go live. Anyway, we have moved well beyond our half hour, I think. Actually, I'm going to have to cut a lot of that stuff out. I was stumbling over stuff and I'm fighting with a cat in heat. I need to take to the vet. Anyway, um, we're going to move into our break. And when we come back, we are going to go to Parkin and Hampson Archaeological State Parks on the eastern side of the state. We'll be right back. What is up, all of you wayward souls? I want to tell you guys about our newest sponsor, Bendetti Optics, a brand based right here in the good old US of A, Portland, Oregon, to be exact. And I bought my first pair of Bendetti sunglasses about a year and a half ago and fell in love with them so much so that I got online and ordered a couple of more pair. And when I did, there was a small shipping snafu, an order fulfillment snafu, and I got on the phone, gave them a call, and guess what? I get a call back from who? One of the big men themselves, right there in Portland from the top of the chain, have a great conversation, and we end up starting this great relationship we have. They more than made right, the little snafu that occurred, and I am now a huge proponent of them because I can tell you from personal experience, they are good people, and they are trying to compete with the big boys out there coming in at a price point of about $40, but using the exact same frame material, TR90, and the same polarization process as the big guys. As it turns out, something I think we are already probably knew in our hearts, when you buy big name sunglasses, you're buying a big name, not necessarily any more quality than you can get somewhere else, like at Bendetti Optics. They have 29 different styles. They have multiple polarization options for whatever climate you happen to live in. And they back it up with like this lifetime guarantee that if your dog eats your sunglasses, it doesn't matter how you break them. Send it back in with a check to cover shipping and handling and you're golden. You got a new pair on the way. These guys are truly trying to do it right. And they have this philosophy that a really good pair of sunglasses should not cost you so much that you are afraid to wear them. And I think all of us outdoorsmen can relate to that. So if you guys, like me, are very practical and like to get more bang for your buck and wear some great looking sunglasses, check out BendettiOptics.com. That's B-E-N-D-E-T-T-I, Optics.com. Or you can go over to Instagram slash BendettiOptics. And that I highly suggest, whether you buy a pair or not, just to check out the cutest pupper you will ever see modeling sunglasses. Once again, that's BendettiOptics.com. And make sure and let them know Wayward Stories sent you. And welcome back. Thank you guys for sticking around through our sponsor break. All right, let's just get rolling into the rest of this episode, Parkin and Hampson. Again, both of them on the eastern side of the state. Now, Plum Bayou, which we just talked about, is just a little south and east of Little Rock, not far outside of Little Rock at all. These are a stretch on further over. They're much closer to Memphis and right along the eastern border of the state. Um, you're right along the Mississippi River. These guys come about four to 500 years later in the chronology. They're a little bit different phase of the Mississippian period. Um, they're actually within the Mississippian period. Plum Bayou kind of bled into it. It was more like kind of like a late woodland type of thing moving into. Anyway, anyway, for any of you that don't know about this stuff, that's all Greek. So let's just keep it high level here. Um, but in addition to these archaeological state parks, there's other stuff going on over there in the eastern half of the state that you're going to want to know about. So let's just get right into it. This was basically road trip number two. Plum Bayou was road trip number one, a little weekend road trip, spur of the moment, overnighter, down to Little Rock, check out all this awesome stuff, head back the next day. This trip was a wayward son alone trip by himself 
And I drove for about 14 hours this day. No, 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 no. I didn't drive for 14 hours. I was out for 14 hours this day because I spent several hours at these state parks. And what it was was about a four-hour drive over to Parkin. I went to Parkin first and then to Hampson. Parkin is closer to Interstate 40. Hampson is a little bit further north, only about 45 minutes from Parkin. So let's talk about Parkin. Parkin is, again, a little bit later um, chronologically speaking, and has a very interesting thing going on because it's possible that Parkin and the Nodina site, which is what the Hampson Archaeological Museum is covering, they're only a few miles apart, you know, 40 minutes driving-ish, but, you know, they're relatively close, and there's a good chance they were at war with each other, which is why both villages were built in the manner they were. We're going to touch on that. But also, Parkin has the distinction of being a place that Hernando de Soto visited in Arkansas. And it is one of the only places that we have this kind of record from a European explorer at first contact. You need to understand, when we're talking about pre-contact, post-contact, de Soto was one of the earliest people to make it into the interior of the United States. He's actually the reason that there were no indigenous peoples really left to mount any kind of real resistance to European incursion and the expansion of the United States because they had all died of diseases that they had gotten by some of the earliest incursions. DeSoto was one of them. There were several French incursions. Um, and the diseases they brought with them just absolutely decimated the population. There wasn't that many people left to even like form a resistance. They kind of just had to deal with whatever the burgeoning U.S. government decided to do to them. They didn't really have a, they didn't have anyone left. It was like, seriously, by the time we hit the 1800s and we start expanding West, they were all dead. I mean, it's horrible sounding, but it's true. They were all dead because we killed them. I mean, it was basically biological warfare by accident. It, it's insane. It's insane. But that's different episode of a different show. That's not wayward stories, obviously. Um, but for our purpose to stay in my little road trip, I roll into parking. And so while I'm going to parking, this is interesting. And I love this, you know, I'm road tripping down through there and I'm trying to catch up. So I have this one podcast I really love when it comes to archeology span and it's called the seven ages audio journal. Um, and they talk about some really, really interesting stuff and they make their little road trips and they go to a lot of sites like this. And they just so happen to have come to parking as part of their mound builder series. And that was really, really interesting because those gentlemen interviewed a fellow named Nate Odom, who happens to be the guy at Parkin Archaeological State Park. So I'm listening to this as I'm pulling in. I've been listening all the way from Fort Smith. I've gone over this episode a couple of times, a few others around the Mound Builders um, era to kind of, you know, just refresh my brain before I go in here and look at what I'm going to look at so I can place it. I'm going to have like a waypoint, you know, I got to have like a touchstone. And so I'm listening to Seven Ages and I'm listening to them interview Nate Odom. And I walk into the doors of Parkin and I'm greeted by Nate Odom. And we talked for, I don't know, I'd say I took a better part of hour and a half of his afternoon. We had a great talk. That gentleman, let me tell you something. You want to talk about a great science communicator, a great interpreter. He is awesome. If you go to Parkin, hope that you run into Nate because that guy can fill you in on all the details in a way that is engaging and in a way that we can understand it, the lay persons of the public, right? That's what good science communication is, is taking really broad ideas and concepts that, you know, people spend entire lifetimes specializing in and becoming experts in and boiling it down in a way that the rest of us who don't really know anything about it can come in and actually connect to something within it and understand the broad strokes. That right there is a talent, y'all. That is a art. That is a talent and an art. And he is good at it. Like, I would brag on that dude all day. He is a great example of a good interpreter in a park system. It was really cool. But he filled me in about all the stuff. We talked at length about many things, not just parking. We talked about we talked about a lot of stuff. Archaeology, we happened to be at the same archaeological dig this last summer, the first one I ever got to go to. We just didn't happen to be in the same place at the same time because he was out doing shovel tests and I was digging for a day and washing artifacts for a day in the short time I got to be there. But we were at the same place, same time. We just didn't run into each other. But anyway, let me tell you about Parkin. According to the literature from the state, 
and then we'll kind of talk a little bit more about the surrounding area and move on up to Hampson. Parkin Archaeological State Park. Parkin Archaeological State Park exists to preserve, collect, research, and interpret the site and its associated American Indian culture, emphasizing the period of A.D. 1200 to 1600, its interaction with the first Europeans, and the impact of historic utilization of the site area. This 17-acre site on the St. Francis River was occupied by Mississippian Indians from A.D. 1000 to 1550. The village was surrounded by a moat and a log palisade wall for protection. Agricultural fields for growing corn, beans, and crops were located outside the moat. A large platform mound that served as a base for the chief's house on the bank of the river remains today. This site is important for understanding the history and prehistory of northeast Arkansas. There were once many archaeological sites similar to Parkin throughout this region, but careless digging and modern agricultural practices have destroyed most of these. The Parkin site is unique because it has been largely protected from destruction. Parkin is the best preserved village site of this time period in the region. It is designated as a National Historic Landmark by the U.S. National Park Service, and it's one of only 16 such sites in Arkansas. Now, this is where it gets kind of interesting. Because you get into the DeSoto Entrada, the DeSoto Expedition. The Parkin site is also important because many scholars believe it is the American Indian village of Koski, visited by the expedition of Hernando DeSoto in the summer of 1541. Four written accounts of this expedition are important sources of information about the American Indian groups living in the southeastern United States when the first Europeans arrived. The DeSoto Expedition, which traveled around what is now Arkansas for two years between 1541 and 43, had a profound effect on the natives. Diseases such as smallpox and influenza, accidentally introduced by the Spaniards, resulted in numerous deaths. Spanish demands for food, language interpreters, and equipment bears led to clashes between the explorers and natives in many parts of the southeast. Many of these clashes are described in the DeSoto Expedition accounts. This encounter at Kowski was one of the few friendly contacts recorded between this expedition and the American Indians. When the expedition arrived in the area, the chief and many residents of Kowski walked over a mile from the village to greet him. They invited Spaniards to stay in town, but the explorers chose to make camp outside of town. And after listening to a religious speech by DeSoto, the chief and a number of villagers were baptized as Christians and helped the Spaniards erect a large wooden cross on top of the chief's mound. That's painful to read out loud, but that's what happened. And that's what DeSoto was doing, was trying to Christianize. Like the French, it's interesting, because the French came and they wanted furs, and they were pretty cool to just chill with, like, the local inhabitants. They wanted to get along. They wanted their furs. They wanted to trap. They weren't really here. Now, there were a few French missionaries, don't get me wrong, for any of you who are history scholars out there, but that's not what the French were really about. The French were here, and they were just like, yo, let's get along. I want your beavers. Like, everyone wants everyone's beavers back in that day. I mean, I guess not much has changed. But anyway, around it, the Spaniards, they did want to. They were conquering in the name of God. They were here to conquer. They were either to convert or conquer. Does that sound familiar? Something in the last 20, 30 years? Anyway, that's what they were doing. Ah, it's a bitter pill to swallow, but welcome to reality. Anyway, anyway, there are some examples we happen to know. And this is something that I don't think is. Yep, here we go. A brass bell from Parkin, probably brought by DeSoto. There is a Spanish brass bell. Things that we know were given away as little kind of almost tchotchkes of a sort, but they were given as gifts when you had these interactions and one was uncovered in an archaeological excavation at Koski or Parkin. So anyway, there's plenty of background evidence. There's plenty of evidence to back up that this may have been the place that DeSoto really made one of the first contacts in Arkansas because everything in Arkansas we figure by well in America at this point but in Arkansas it's 1541 1541 1542 but in the United States obviously you got 1492 you have different times the contact was made but we kind of figure everything now by pre and post contact because that is the most significant thing that happened in indigenous peoples in North American culture that's when everything started to change It's pre-contact post-contact so that's kind of how we delineate these things in Arkansas, it's 1541, and this is the moment. Is that not fascinating? If it is not, I understand. It isn't a lot to a lot of people, but it is to me. And to some of you, it may be. Anyway, one more aspect to Parkin that you might enjoy is the Sawdust Hill community. The reason 
Parkin is so well preserved is because there was a sawmill on the site. There was a community on the site in historic times. And basically that community being built there saved it from the plow. It basically saved it from being plowed under because there was a community there on the spot. And one of the most famous effigy pots from the entire northeastern section of Arkansas in this area that is like these head pots are ubiquitous was under a woman's house, right under her bed, as a matter of fact, not six inches deep in the ground, completely intact, and it is on display at Parkin. It will blow your mind. That little community actually protected the site. When the state of Arkansas got a hold of it, they obviously, they moved and bought everyone out. They bought out the community. Everyone was moving on anyway. The town was essentially dead. The sawmill was long gone. And even the moat itself was preserved because the sawmill actually dumped all of their wood shavings into the moat, acted as a surface layer of protection for the actual original layers of stuff underneath. It's fascinating. This is one of the few times that development actually protected a site. You're not going to run across that every day, just FYI. It's an interesting little thing. But anyway, you've got DeSoto connecting here with the indigenous peoples, and we have records of it. You've got these head pots on display in a beautiful museum. You've got a great interpreter to tell you about it if you catch him when he's there. It's an interesting, fascinating state park here in Arkansas. It's one of my favorites here. Of course, I'm a history nerd, but it is an awesome little history park. Y'all, there's a lot of places in these here United States of ours that could take a page out of Arkansas's book and what we've done with some of our archaeological spaces, some of these mound sites. There's a lot of places they could actually take a page out of our book. That's something to be very proud of, as a matter of fact, as an Arkansan. But anyway, that is Parkin. Parkin is fascinating. But we need to move on from Parkin because this episode is getting rather long. I should have known when I took on to Endeavor that I was going to talk about freaking archaeology on this podcast because I found, hey, state parks, look at that. That's a great excuse to talk about one of the things that's most interesting to me in the entire world, indigenous cultures and archaeology and all of these things in history. I should have known that I could turn this into like a six hour podcast if I let myself. I am heavily restraining myself and we're still running long. So let's move on to Hampson so we can get this guy wrapped up for the night. Um, Hampson is just about 45 minutes up the road. And one of the things that I took note of going up to Hampson, it's in a place called Wilson, Arkansas, is the Hampson Archaeological Museum State Park. You will not see the actual site. It, it, the site that all of the artifacts here come from is the Nodina site. It is on private land and it has always been on private land. And as such, it is actually one of the sites that's produced some of the most incredible artifacts because it was always on private land and it was in the hands of, and this is a rarity too, people who actually appreciated what it was. Okay. And this is again in the 1800s, the people that had it, we don't, we're about to read about it because I'm going to misquote. I had an afternoon there, right? And I'm going to misquote stuff. So we're going to read about it. But the broad stroke is everything there was really well recorded and really well preserved, even though it was farmland, because the person that owned it was actually basically a wannabe archaeologist. And for the time frame, he was as much an archaeologist as anyone else was. I mean, by all means, he was out there doing the best science they knew at the time, and he did a really, really great job. So anyway, Hampson Archaeological Museum State Park in Wilson, Arkansas. And after I talk about the, the museum, we are going to talk about Wilson, and you're going to want to hear this because Wilson is a pretty fascinating little place. Hampson Archaeological Museum State Park houses and exhibits the archaeological collection from a Mississippian-era ceremonial complex and village known as the Nodina Site, located in Mississippi County, Arkansas. This remarkable collection is accompanied by graphics and written material describing the lifestyles of the artistic people who lived here from 1400 to 1650 A.D. or C.E. As a boy, Dr. James K. Hampson, who lived from 1877 to 1956, was fascinated by arrowheads. His interest in archaeology was rekindled in the early 1920s when he returned to the family plantation, Nodina, to set up a successful medical practice. 
1927, he began a painstaking study of the physical remains of the people who inhabited the Nodina site. The Upper Nodina site, located on a meander bend of the Mississippi River, was a 15-acre palisaded village. A plaza used in ceremonies connected two ceremonial mounds and associated structures. South of the plaza was an area possibly used to playing as a playing field for a game called Chunky. Adjacent to and south of the playing field was a third mound. Surrounding this ceremonial area was the village, which included houses and family cemeteries. The Nodina people cultivated corn, beans, and squash. These foods were supplemented by hunting and fishing. White-tailed deer, raccoon, muskrat, squirrel, and rabbit provided food as well as skins and bones for tools, jewelry, and gaming dice. Cane was used for thatch roofs, building materials, fishing traps, and arrow shafts, and could be used as fuel for fire. Hardwood, bald cypress, oak, and cottonwood was used for canoes, tools, and larger weapons like knives, spears, atlatls, and bows. Local backswamp clays were used in the elaborate pottery vessels the Mississippian culture has become known for, including the beautiful typesite pottery, Nodina Red and White. Stone for tools and weapons was imported from the north, and trade networks also brought shells from the Gulf of Mexico and salt from Missouri. Yeah, these peoples, you guys, the Mississippian Arab peoples, they had a massive trade network. Massive trade network is fascinating. But anyway, we're running along. I shall bore you no more with some of that stuff. But what you need to know is this museum in Wilson, Arkansas, the Hampson Archaeological Museum State Park, this museum is an incredible museum. The things you will see within it. Guys, when I'm when I say it's second to none, to find Record, document, preserve, and protect the level of artifact that is in that museum is incredibly rare in United States history, North American history, and there is a lot of it in this museum. It is a little bit mind-blowing. It's it's very, very awesome. It is totally worth an adventure over to check out. In addition to the museum itself being so freaking awesome. This little town of Wilson is one of the trippiest little things I've ever seen. And I love it. And I love it even harder now that I did a little research to figure out what the hell is going on over there. Okay. So I roll into this little town down state highway through all these fields, through tens of thousands of cotton bells, which a modern day cotton bell is fascinating. See, it's actually kind of beautiful in its own right out there stacked up. They look like hay bales, round hay bales. Any of you have ever seen a round hay bale out in the field? They look like that, but they're wrapped in plastic and it's all white and floofy. Anyway, they're everywhere out there because it's still cotton country, y'all. And there's all these really crazy looking buildings out there where they would keep, you know, these big piles of cotton inside and they would do all their processing. They're like not shaped like buildings you would normally see basically anywhere. The infrastructure for this cotton industry is really fascinating and most of it's really old. It goes back like 60, 80, 100 years. It's really neat stuff and it's really beautiful drives. You would be surprised. I'm telling you I was surprised when I tell you this little road trip was so cool. The 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 scenery was beautiful. I mean this little town of Wilson was a trip because you pull into this town of Wilson, okay? The archaeological museum is right here up, you know, in the front of their little town square. And you pull into the town square and it looks like it was built like on a model layout, like a model railroad layout or something. Like it's like this perfect little clean in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of nowhere of cotton fields in the middle of nowhere, Arkansas. It's got like all these beautiful brick little buildings and it's like a perfectly square little square. Like, I mean, there's squares all over this freaking state that ain't nowhere near square, y'all. There's a round square in Greenwood. There's one place up in, I can't remember, it's up close to, it's near Ponca in the Buffalo River. It's like a circle that's a roundabout that's a square that's somewhat triangular and it's a little bit hexagonal. It's one of the weirdest things you'll ever see. So when I say this thing is perfectly square, it literally looks like it was laid out on like grid paper, drawn perfectly, and it's beautiful. It looks like it was built yesterday. Well, it turns out it was built in like 1925, 1930. And what it is, is this Wilson family that the town of Wilson is named after who owned all of the land out there because they had this giant cotton plantation. One of their sons got married, went on a honeymoon in England and came back and was like, yo, I'm down with Tudor style architecture. So they just rebuilt the whole damn town, 
to look like this like this Tudor style, Tudor revival style. It's around 1925, Wilson Squares, Tudor revival style. Dude just like came back after his honeymoon over in Europe and was like, you know what, I like Tudor revival style. Let's redo the town. And they did. And it's really awesome looking. They have this awesome little cafe, or I'm given to understand it's awesome. It was Sunday, so they were closed because that's how we roll in Arkansas. Everything's closed on Sunday. But I did research on it just so I could tell you about it. And it is highly, highly rated, and it's a beautiful little structure. And also there's like a hotel right there that apparently is super bougie because the people in the actual archaeological museum were like, yeah, look, the cheapest room's probably like $250, 300 a night. I was like, good. Anyway... I'm sure that it's worth it because it's gorgeous. Again, I did a little bit of research about Wilson itself just so I could tell you guys about it. It is neat as hell. And I want to go back over there just to stay on their little town square and like find something else to do in that part of the state and make that a base camp because it was just, y'all, there's something about it. It was really beautiful. It was really beautiful. Like it had this whole homey, almost nostalgic Americana kind of feel, even though it's like, that makes no sense, right? Tudor revival style. But there's something about the feel there that feels like old, small town, American neighborhoods, the trees, the everything about it was really, really neat. And it was something that I did not expect to find in the middle of nowhere, Eastern Arkansas. But y'all, it's an awesome little town. And it's within 45 minutes of our parking site. Right here is Hampson, which is just down the road from the Nodina site, which we can't go to the Nodina site, but it's all right in the same area. And it's really fascinating because we're pretty sure those two societies were probably at war with each other. You got parking, they call it the parking phase. You got the Nodina site, which is Nodina phase. Pretty sure they're at war with each other, which is why they both had moats and palisades. Like there's pretty strong evidence for that. And so like, it was interesting for me knowing that as I left parking and sitting there talking for Nate Odom for two hours and I go to drive to the Nodina site and with these things in mind and my training that I'm getting and have had and how this stuff kind of works and the history of it, I'm driving across these landscapes and I'm thinking in my head of like, wow, this is what it, a lot of what it may have looked like then, you know, there'd have been less cotton fields, of course, but the idea of the wilderness sections, this is a lot what it would have been like. And these people were ranging out hunting, and this is probably why they ended up with war at each other, is they were probably competing over the same, like, furs, the same game, and, like, the same hunting grounds. Who knows what it was really about? But that's one of, like, probably likely explanations. And to see that landscape with your own eyes and think about these two locations that we have kind of preserved one place and another, and that this was just a stretch between them, they were like rivals, but the kind of rivals that kill each other right? This is like high school rivals. It's the town, it's the next town over and they're at war with each other. It's fascinating to think about as you travel those landscapes to just kind of, you can almost kind of go there for a minute. In my mind, at least I can go there. I'm quite an imaginative person. Um, but it was a really neat road trip, y'all. I drove for 14, well, I was out for 14 hours that day. I drove for what, eight, 10 hours probably, but it was so worth it. I spent over two hours at parking because it's given to it. And then I spent a good solid 45 minutes to an hour just wandering around in Hampson's museum and exploring it and talking to the fine ladies that were working in there. Told us all about it, the superintendent and um, her front desk. They were awesome. They told me about the little town square. They told me about Wilson. Also, right now, it's Christmas time. Wilson, all these giant buildings for agricultural buildings for the cotton and stuff from a hundred years ago. They're all restored. They're all gorgeous. And they're all lit up in Christmas lights right now for the holidays. Super neat little town, something to consider guys for road trips for the future. If you're here in the state with me, or if you're over in Tennessee or even Kentucky, Mary, you may want to do this south of the boot hill in Missouri. If you're anywhere in this area, it turns out Eastern Arkansas is something not to sleep on. It's a whole thing. Eastern Arkansas is a whole thing. I could talk for another hour and keep going, but I'm not going to. 
you guys need to check out all of our Arkansas state parks. We've got all kinds. Arkansas, one thing we really do have in this state is a great state park system, y'all. We've got some amazing stuff from places like Pettyjean, where you can hike to your heart's content and see waterfalls and seven hollows and all of these wonderful things up to Devil's Den that has a ton of hiking to things like these archeological state parks. We've got some killer state parks perfect for day road trips. So anyway, guys, I've got to wrap up this episode. This ran really long, and now I have a long night of editing editing ahead of me. I hope I didn't run all of you off tonight. I hope I didn't lose all of my followers, but tonight, you know what? This was my Christmas present to myself. I nerded out on an episode, and I wish I'd thought about that before I recorded it, because I would have done it better justice. I've been like severely watering this down and holding back and restraining my nerdiness so that it wouldn't run forever and I wouldn't completely destroy any interest any of you had left in this show. Um, And now that I'm thinking about it, this is my Christmas present to myself. I nerded out a little bit. I wish I'd gone a little bit harder in the paint, but it's too late for that now and there ain't no way in hell I'm re-recording all of that. So I hope you guys enjoyed tonight's show. I hope that maybe you learned something interesting that might have inspired you lit a little fire to get you out and explore some things. Any of you down in the southeast, you were within day shot of some awesome mound site somewhere, even if it isn't one of ours here in Arkansas. They're all throughout the southeast, all through the Midwest, up into the upper Midwest. God, I can't wait to go to the Great Effigy Mounts National Park or National Monument. It's a park or a monument up in the Wisconsin area. I cannot wait to do that someday. But anyway, I hope that I entertained and I informed you and let you know that even if you're just not into history necessary, necessarily, there is a ton of awesome stuff and some really neat road tripping to be done in eastern Arkansas. And I hope you guys get out and check it out. I would love to wish all of you a Merry Christmas, a Happy Kwanzaa, a Happy Hanukkah, whatever you celebrate or if you celebrate nothing at all. I wish you the very best over the next few days, the next week. I hope you've got time off work. I hope some of you out there road tripping and exploring and finding your own adventures and hopefully finding yourself, which is where this all started for me to begin with. Until we meet again, when I will regale you with stories for hopefully several episodes to come of all the adventures I shall find in New Mexico and Arizona, you guys get out, find something to do with yourselves, and don't forget to be good to each other.